Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. So before we hop into things, here's a list of the topics you can expect to hear about on today's episode. So we discuss the limitations on human linguistic abilities, two consciousness-changing insights having to do with learning, the importance of a nurturing supervisor, especially at the beginning of your academic career, the personal experience of pain, environmental effects on behavior and emotional state, the structures and processes of graduate school, mental health in academia, teaching versus tutoring, empathy, instructional design and educational technology, what academic institutions can learn from Apple and Google, a unique definition of motivation, and the outcomes of putting your authentic self first. Of course, this and so much more on today's episode of Abstract, so let's get right into it. Nadine Bekush is completing a PhD in education at Concordia University. She likes to talk about things like systems and social infrastructure, personal and systemic transformation, and the ways that people learn. Her first foray into graduate education started over 10 years ago when she studied medical psychology and behavioral cardiology. Transformational insights from that period include learning how groups influence knowledge formation and the physiology of pre-symbolic learning. Before starting her current PhD focused on instructional design, she worked for several years as an academic tutor and coach, training students at every level from elementary to graduate school. Her current research centers on the structures and processes of graduate education. So let's hop right into it. We have Nadine Bekush on the podcast today. Nadine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Pleasure. I think first and foremost, I need to thank you because I was involved in the Concordia three-minute thesis competition this year, and your coaching was invaluable to me. So I, I do appreciate that. I did learn a lot about that particular way of communicating science. And in a sense, that has almost inspired this podcast to a degree. So now we're kind of coming full circle. Pleasure to have you. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. I love coaching the, the 3MP. It's a really fun, it's a really fun time. Yeah, I agree. It was, it, was an, it was interesting to both be coached and also observe others being coached. For people who are listening right now who have not heard of the three-minute thesis competition, I believe it's, it's a national competition, right? Is, is it it's outside of Canada? International competition. International. It's international. It actually started in Australia mm-hmm. and subsequently spread. And so the, the competitions are hosted first locally at the university level, then regionally in your country, then nationally and then internationally. So you can like win at each of these stages. Got it. Okay. So yeah, the three minute thesis is a three minute condensed talk about what your thesis is. So it's open to masters and PhD students. And uh, like Nadine was saying, it's international. So it kind of starts from the bottom and then you kind of expand outwards. If you're good enough. 
it's a yeah and it's a real challenge because you know you're trying to condense something that you're used to talking about for a relatively long span of time mm -hmm. into three minutes which is quite simply not enough time to actually describe <laughs> what you're doing right. right enter abstract the podcast where we have approximately 60 minute thesis which ends up being less of a monologue, more, more of a dialogue. So yeah. I guess we could think of this as 60 minute thesis, approximately <laughs> maybe like 45 to 50 minute thesis, depending how much I decide to talk, which should be minimal moving forward. So this is a jam packed introduction. A lot of introductions have been jam packed, which makes for jam packed episodes. So this is uh, hopefully going to be foreshadowing a beautiful discussion about many things centered around learning. The first thing I want to do, which is something I've been doing in the last few episodes and I would like to do moving forward, is to really set up a clear timeline for your academic path. It's something that I'm personally interested in, and I think others who are at any stage in their academic path would be curious yeah. to know about how one ends up studying education at a PhD level. So let's go back to bachelor's, and why don't you go ahead and walk us through your path, Nadine. So I did my bachelor's at McGill in psychology. Let's see, that would have been, I guess I started in 2004, finished okay. in 2007. And I did the honors psychology program at McGill for those who know it. It's a very kind of a research intensive program. Basically you get to do a supervised research project in your second year and in your third year. And then when I was there, basically at first I studied how do you take a noun in the English language and turn it into a verb? So basically, linguistic side of psychology, which I find very, very fun and which you know quite a lot about. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I transitioned more into the, the mind-body side of things. And that's where I continued. So after that, I took a year, I was RAing. Then I went to do my, my master's degree, which as you know, in psychology programs, very often these are master's PhD degrees, combos. And so I went to do that at a uh, institution called the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, which is in Maryland, and it is a military university. Interesting. And so it's very small. The psychology program there is very, very specialized on things that could arguably be of interest to the military. So very strong focus on stress, combat stress, trauma, this kind of thing. And of course, because the military is a whole kind of an infrastructure, it's a whole institution, a very strong uh, emphasis on health. How did you hear about this specific program at this specific school? Are you from Maryland or have any connections there? No, I mean, I'm from Montreal. But what happened is that I was studying, when I got into the mind-body stuff at, at McGill, I ended up studying behavioral cardiology, which is basically how do psychological states influence on physiological health, in particular cardiac health. And that, you know, it's not a huge field. It's, I mean, it's pretty big, but it's not huge. And basically my supervisor who was helping me at the undergrad level suggested a few different labs for me to apply to for my master's. And this was one of them at this institution. So I had not heard of it. It's a very small institution. So, you know, it's not, not particularly well known, but uh, my supervisor there is very well known in the field. And so I went to work with him. Okay. So that's, that's definitely one of the more unconventional paths so far that I've heard. A lot of people, at least if, if they lived in Montreal, people generally like to stay in Montreal. Yeah. or not move too far away or go to random obscure institutions in the middle of the United States of America. Yeah, so that's cool. We're very, uh, we're very, you know, Montreal has a kind of a strong local culture. We, we tend to like it here. Sure. Anyway. I, so before we, we kind of blast through the whole thing, I, I do want to take a little moments to pause and ask quick questions about what you're actually doing in each of these 
periods of your degree. So you said, was it in your bachelor's or your master's where you were talking about turning nouns into verbs? A bachelor's. That was bachelor's. That was my so, first research project. Amazing. Can you explain how it is that there's a process that turns nouns into verbs in under one minute? Oh gosh. I don't think I can, I don't think I can do that for you, Jeremy. <laughs> I'm okay. like, no, because it was, you know, basically what I was trying to do with that study, which was my, my first, you know, attempt at a research study was try to figure out if there are limits to this. Like, can we do it with any noun? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so basically I gave people a bunch of different nouns and saw how easy it was for them to understand that word when used as a verb. So you would take the noun as it's like, just as the noun, the noun itself, form, you wouldn't modify it at all. No, and I didn't modify it. We did check, you know, we did the, the I can't remember what they're called, but like not glossary checks, but you know, go into the, like the database? databases. Yeah, to make sure that they're words that aren't already being used as verbs. Okay. Try to control for like the frequency that you would hear them at, et cetera. And then see if people would be just able to, you know, understand the meaning in the novel situation. And in general, you know, people are. English has that kind of particular capability, which you don't see in every language, where you can really shift the word class pretty dramatically. Were you able to demonstrate that this is not as easy in other languages? Oh, not, not empirically. I mean, I, you know, I'm fluent in French, so I know that it's not as easy to do in French. That's just more your, your, your personal intuition on it. Yeah. Intuition slash, you know, you can also try things. People do this with proper nouns. So, you know, people will talk about like the buffetization of the economy in French mm-hmm. quite fluently, but not necessarily with uh, common nouns. I'm trying to even remember the title of my thesis. You got to bear in mind, this was, this was many moons ago. Right. It would have been like 2005 or 2006. So I'm like, ah. Maybe we'll have to dig it up. Did it get published? No, no, no. 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 This was, I was working with very serious people who were like, this is your first, your first attempt. You don't yeah. publish your first attempt. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We don't want the world to know that this is what you're capable of. Uh. <laughs> okay. No, it was good though. It was a really good experience. Um, my supervisor was really, really great. Name is Dr. Chris Onishi, and she, uh, you know, she really. I mean, I feel like she was, you know, she kind of really set me up. Like, listen, we'll just go out, go ahead and, and be honest here. Not all supervisors are going to invest as much into you as you know as they could or as whatever. She really invested a lot. She really trained me really well, and I feel like from that experience, I was really well set up for my future research projects. That's great. So for the listeners now, I, I I think this is an important note to make. Notes. I'm glad you brought it up because. The supervisor plays a huge role, especially early on in your research career. So yeah. it's kind of, I, I think it can definitely be make or break. So really put that effort in. Absolutely. If you're an undergrad listening to this right now, looking to do research, put the effort in to find uh, a great supervisor, either by talking to people who you know, who have worked under them, or by you know scanning the community, because you really yeah. want to be set up for success. Maybe Chris Onishi has an availability if you're at McGill University. <laughs> Um, the other thing that I was going to say, though, is that, you know, when you when you're looking for a great supervisor, basically, you want to also figure out what you want, because, you know, basically, I'm saying she's a great supervisor. She really helped me. And what that meant was that she really worked with me to develop my ideas. She worked with me to develop the ethics protocol. She like really kind of sat there and talked to me about it. Mm-hmm. Right. But I did say that study never got published. So if you're just kind of looking for like an easy pub, that's a different thing. And that's not necessarily a great supervisor. Like if you're an undergrad, an easy pub usually means you're working on their research. Everything has already been thought through before you got there. So you're not going to get that training. Okay. So there is a distinction there. Do you want to go the creative route where you develop yourself? Or do you want to go the hard and fast, 
published wrote, <laughs> got those papers out. It's, it's up to you. The world is your publishable oyster. So Basher's good. So we hit the masses. You did a very interesting foray into behavioral cardiology at a weird institute in Maryland. Not weird, just, I guess, off the beaten path, small niche. Yeah, kind of small and not very well known. So. And then you kind of took a left turn to education. How did that, like, was there a break between those two degrees? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, so I finished my master's there. I started doing a PhD in psychology. I ended up leaving the PhD in psychology. And then I started working for, I think it was a six year break. And I was, did a little bit of research, you know, in a lab, but found that I really didn't, didn't like that very much. So I ended up doing a lot of coaching and tutoring. And what happened, there was a break. So going back to what happened during the master's, my master's degree, I had, I think two, you know, two kind of big consciousness changing insights, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And both of them had to do with learning. And so one was that, you know, a lot of the way that we understand the world is socially determined. This might not sound like a very big deal to a lot of people listening, but going through it the way I went through it, which was coming from the, the kind of foundational research in social psychology and seeing how that all built, builds up in terms of its mechanics was kind of profoundly interesting to me. And then connected to that, what I was doing in my master's thesis was looking at the experience of pain in patients who have ischemia, so a, a, a heart condition basically, that involves the fact that you wouldn't get enough oxygen going into the heart. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes there's some kind of contraction and oftentimes there's pain, but not always. So basically one of the questions is when is there pain and why? Because in such a condition, having pain is actually very helpful because it tells the patient when there's a problem, right? Mm, yep. If you don't have any pain and your heart is, is doing this, then you, you could get into kind of serious trouble faster. Yeah, so that's what I was studying. And basically, one of the things that emerged from my thesis, and I was using a framework called the Neuromatrix Theory of Pain, which essentially, it, that it is from Ron Melzack. So it's, it's uh, you know, this is very, very intensive philosophy of pain type stuff. And the, the idea is that actually, you learn pain. You learn, your, your physiology learns how to perceive a certain kind of pain. That's one of the ideas of it. That's called the pain signature in that theory. And then there are a bunch of other uh, things that go along with it. But basically what I found is that that emerged in my data. And this was, again, something that, you know, when I was talking to my supervisor about it, when I was talking to other people about it, they did not find this as interesting as I did. But basically, people who had experienced pain in the past were considerably like 20 times more likely to experience pain in the future compared to people who didn't. And I was like, okay, is that something that is reflecting the fact that pain is learned? So that's kind of the way I took it. That was the way that I was thinking about it. That does sound very drastic, but doesn't everybody experience pain? How can you say that people who experience pain experience it, experience it more later on? Like, I, I think everyone stubbed their toe. Everyone's lost a family member. Also, is there a difference between emotional and physical pain? So many questions. Well, there is a difference. Oftentimes they do, you know, if you look at the neurological research or the neuropsych research, they'll say, well, look, the pain of rejection and physical pain, they tend to light up similar parts of the brain. And they do light up similar parts of the brain, but they have different patterns within that, which if you're a biological reductionist, which I happen to be, should make sense to you because if they lit up exactly the same parts of the brain with exactly the same pattern, 
you should not be able to differentiate when you've been rejected and when you stub your toe, but you can, right? Right. So clearly it's not exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. However, there are related experiences of distress. But the idea of the pain signature is that different kinds of pain, this is the way that I understand it. So pain is a complex experience. It's an affective experience. It's a physical experience. There's a cognitive component to it. So it is a complex experience that creates some whole, right? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It creates an experience. So let's say when you stub your toe. So everybody has stubbed their toe. How long does it take you to experience pain after you stub your toe? Well, it kind of comes in like two phases. There's the immediate like kind of shock of stubbing your toe. And then there's the kind of like throbbing pain that follows. It should take approximately a second because for the pain to travel all the way up to your nervous, all the way up your nervous system and into your brain, and into your consciousness it takes about a second. So there's actually a delay when you stub your toe, okay. but you know, the pain is coming because you go, Oh crap. So you have that time to stub your toe. You have enough time to go, I'm going to have pain. And then the pain comes. Okay. But the thing about the pain signature is a little bit more nuanced than that. It's basically saying that when you stub your toe, the first time, let's say you're a kid, right? You don't know what's coming. You stub your toe, you wait a second, in that second you have time to say, I'm gonna be fine. And then, boom, okay, then the pain you hits. Learn. You learn that it's painful. <laughs> you learn that it's painful and you learn the kind of pain that it is. Mm -hmm. So that by the time you get to stubbing your toe for the 50th time, basically that signature is already kind of burnt in. You know what to expect. Does that mean that, you, that it's no longer one second before you feel pain, it's actually instantaneous? It probably is still a second because, you know, the, it's not as if having the pain signature makes the neurological activation unimportant, right? It just kind of makes it more practiced. Okay. So I think it, like you're still going to have the delay because it's still going to take time to travel up your body, but the, the experience becomes a kind of a known experience. Okay. Let me give you another example mm -hmm. that maybe, maybe you'll find a little bit easier to, to accept. In the world of clinical psychology, there is a phenomenon that has been observed, which is that the, the kind of threshold that is needed for the initial experience of a major depression is, let's say, yay high. The threshold that is needed for the second experience of major depression is lower. So basically, if you're asking me, and again, I'm giving you, this is kind of like my interpretation of these. Right. Yep. The experience of major depression, what it is to be depressed in that way has become learned. And now it's easier to access that state. So that, that does make sense for somebody who has never experienced depression, but reads books about people's experiences. Can that have the same effect? I find this very interesting question, actually. What kind of books? DSM or do you mean a, a kind of a, a... Sure. Yeah. Like actual case studies of people who've experienced depression. Because if you're saying that you learn from your own experience, can you also build this, like, can you kind of reinforce the same pathways by by, by studying the experiences of others? Okay, again, this is my opinion, right? I think to some extent, yes. But I, know, I don't think it's always possible to do it completely. I also think that there are gonna be a couple of other factors that are gonna come into play here. One is gonna be obviously the quality of the description that you're reading. And the second is probably gonna have to relate to treat empathy. So some people just find it a lot easier to tune into other people's experiences of pain. And so for those people, yeah, I think they, they can learn it faster. But I, I don't think that you can learn it in the same way, like let's say in the same level of detail. Sure. If you're taking it in secondhand. But I think that you can, you can get something. 
feel like I need a, a full 24 hours to really mull all of this over before I can even fully, fully wrap my head around the, the implication of this. I just started reading a book that's, it's, it's called Social. I believe it's by Lieberman. Okay. Anyhow, it, one of the sections was, was talking about how if you are with a partner of yours and you are receiving shocks and they observe you receiving shocks, they can often actually kind of experience that pain. Yeah. So I, I guess that is in, in, in a sense related to empathy, but. That is empathy. Listen, the world of psychology is, is as you know, there's a, there is a distinction between the clinical world and the research world. And part of the, the distinction is there because there's stuff that's kind of observed in clinical practice that's just really hard to research. Empathy is one of those things. Mm -hmm. If you talk to people with kind of a lot of clinical experience, like they don't question it. You know, they don't question certain kind of certain uh, manifestations of, of empathy. And especially, for example, in couples or in partnerships, people you know well, I imagine it's kind of similar if you're talking about like your parents, your kids, people who are like, you know, close to you, and who you, you know, to some degree kind of identify with, yeah, the empathy can be really, really strong. But especially in couples and partners, people will say, yeah, no, it's, it's like, they're right there. They go, you know, if my husband wakes up at night, like, I'm up. I'm just like, just, I'm up. You know, I'm not stressed. I'm fine. He's stressed, so I'm up. <laughs> this all has such, such distinct flavors of this thing you mentioned in your introduction, which is part of your transformational insights of how groups influence knowledge formation. So of yeah. course there's knowledge formation, but there's also things like empathy and yeah. understanding like a psychiatric illness. So do you think that if you hang out around people who are depressed, your threshold for experiencing depression will lower? Ooh, ooh. I will tell you that I think yes, and I will bolster that yes with research by Christakis on social networks. Okay. So that research, and so a lot of people, by the way, have, have totally disagreed with this research. This research is very complex. But basically, they, have, they found that, you know, if you, if you are connected to people who smoke, you are more likely to start smoking just through network effects. You know, I think they found the same thing with obesity. So yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I don't see how the same thing wouldn't apply to depression. I think it's probably been, you know, may well be easier with something like depression. So given that answer then, could a potential therapy for people who suffer from depression or a lower threshold for experiencing depression, is there any way, this almost sounds very like Orwellian, you know, but could we insert them into a specialized environment where they're surrounded by people who are not as susceptible to depression or who experience complete opposite side, uh, Symptoms to depression. I'm so happy that you asked that question because now you understand why I study instructional design. Uh, it's all coming together. Is that, yeah, I think that there are environments that I think are more conducive to, how can I say, preventing people, even if they are, they are susceptible, let's say, to depression. There are environments that are definitely more conducive to supporting the mental health than others. And I think that that's, I don't think that's a very controversial statement. And part of that has to do, yes, with like, is everybody around you depressed? Because if everybody around you is depressed, it's going to be hard for you to really resist that. If everybody around you is doing really well, probably you're going to be pulled along with their upbeat, high vibe mm -hmm. attitudes. That current of positivity. Yeah. And I think that the environments that we live in and construct have an awful lot to do with, you know, how people are doing. And I don't think that's controversial because I think, let me put it to you this way. 
In my current research, I look at you know, the, the structures, the processes of graduate education. One thing that has been observed is that in many graduate programs, the rates of things like depression and anxiety are pretty high considering the population, relatively young people, you know, theoretically doing well, kind of successful. So why would you have a kind of a relatively high rate of anxiety or depression? And what I, what I kind of do in my current research is conceptualize those mental health issues, not so much as individual problems, right, but as uh, markers of how well the system is functioning. If you're in an environment that's well-structured in the sense that the people who are making the decisions are rewarding the people who are working hard and producing good work, you know, the leadership kind of makes sense, promotions are happening in the way that you would expect them to happen, you know, if, if it's based on, you know, merit. If you have that kind of environment and you have a high rate of mental health issues, then you should be able to conceptualize mental health issues as a systemic problem in addition to having like an individual component, right? If you have like a very, like a, a well, you know, well-functioning environment and you- And you don't see the mental health issues? Yeah, that, then that's kind of what you would expect. And I think that that is oftentimes what happens. So if you have a well-functioning environment you shouldn't be seeing that many mental health issues because it really should be related more to what's going on, let's say, in an individual individual's like personal life. Right, and then it'll kind of average out to not being a big problem. Exactly. You yeah. should see no more, like no more than population rates, if not lower. So, what do we see? I guess this is kind of a case by case based on the different fields. What what I guess within graduate research, I don't know if this is kind of like a private or like secret information here, but. Is there one uh, field of research where we see extremely high rates of anxiety and depression in graduate students? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, no, this research has been done. It's public, don't worry. The humanities and fine arts seem to be doing the worst. And then the social sciences seem to be doing better than the natural sciences, but it's, you know, it's variable. The social sciences, of course, is like, you know, even as a bucket, it's not a hugely helpful bucket because the different disciplines really operate very differently. Okay. But the social but, sciences yeah. include things like psychology and sociology, sociology anthropology, anthropology, yeah. you know, and a lot of the kind of newer disciplines. So if you're talking about, uh, you know, some, some kind of community development stuff that would go in there. Mm -hmm. But the disciplines that seem to be doing the best in general are disciplines like engineering. Where job prospects are good and where you're ro you rooting your research in like it's hard, hard physics that's been around for 500 years. There you go. <laughs> okay, but you know, that's great to know that. And I appreciate that this is now part of the information that I have in my brain. But what can we do about that? Are there just fundamental differences between the study of things like the brain versus study of things like bridges that will just naturally lead to worse mental health outcomes? Like, is it about the, the actual learning, like the thing that's so, being studied? Yeah, so I feel like that, that is an interesting question. And basically, I, I would say that before, okay, so before answering that question, I'm gonna answer a different question that you didn't ask, which is, <laughs> okay. what, are the, like, what, what are the systemic pressures kind of operating on the different disciplines? And you brought one up, like job prospects. Yeah. So obviously a department or an institution cannot change, you know, the external job prospects of studying in, in a given field yeah. versus another one. 
But my question would be, are there other things about the way that the fields are set up or about the way that departments are very often run, you know, that could also make mental health basically better, be protective or exacerbate a problem? So let's say that that was the question that I asked. How would you answer that question? I would say that, yeah, it seems because the thing is, we know that different departments have different rates of mental health problems. And so the question becomes, you know, what is a good design of a program? So in my kind of subfield of education, called instructional design and educational technology. And I don't use the word educational technology too often because people's mind usually goes to digital technology. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, so you study gamification and that kind of thing. And although that is part of what educational technology is about, educational technology is broader and also basically involves things like the management level, management processes, how, how things are set up, involve things like what's the incentive structure, you know, and a bunch of different aspects of how do you design not only kind of like a classroom, but a department and an institution in order to maximize performance. So based on the kind of different frameworks that exist in educational technology, you know, you could do an analysis, for example, of graduate school, which is what I'm doing, and see, okay, what basically what works well, what supports students, and what doesn't seem to work well. So those would be the systemic things. So then to address your other question, which wait, is- Wait, wait, So oh, what works well, what doesn't work well? Like we get some answers here. I want the juice, I want the juiciness. I'm still, I'm like, I'm still doing the research. So You're I don't still wanna, doing it, okay, okay. Yeah, I don't wanna like jump the gun. Perfect, yeah, but, that's um, all good. Okay, so this is but, what we can expect from Nadine in the near future. Yeah, exactly. In terms of, you know, kind of the simple, the simple answer, although this is, you know, this is only one layer, but obviously when people are working in kind of functional labs with certain kinds of supervision, they tend to be doing better. But I don't really want to, you know, I don't want to make that the be all and end all because as important as supervision is, it's not the only factor that's involved. There are other levels. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it involves things even just like the physical space of the department. So basically, how many opportunities for kind of informal contact, you know, with other people do you have? That makes complete sense. Maybe the whole department should just be in a giant sphere, so everybody can see everyone from like every angle. We can be in harnesses hanging from the sphere. Exactly. We gotta copy Apple's like what is it? The central central office design circle. Is that what they do? I think so. I think I they just hit the people hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> That might cause issues uh, in terms of bathroom breaks, but <laughs> Apple's got to be doing something right because I think they just hit $2 trillion as their market cap. So we won't go down that road, but Apple's doing something right. So maybe, maybe we, should, we should start you know, making, making these rectilinear walls a little more, a little more elliptical, but that's, yeah. pretty, that's well, a discussion no, for a different day. Tech companies actually do a lot right. You know, and you know, when people were very, at some point people were always talking about Google's, Google's kind of flexible work schedules and how they try to encourage their employees to give their best. Basically, they treat their employees as high functioning, very smart people and say, as long as you can meet your objective, we kind of don't care how you do it. Mm-hmm. But they tried a bunch of different things to you know, set up a system that would be maximally productive. But that to me kind of sounds like what the graduate school experience is slash should be. If you're in graduate school and you're, and you're performing at a, at a high level, you're presumably an intelligent person who can carry out tasks independently and doesn't necessarily need to have the same kind of nine to five rigidity that an office job would require. Right. And most, many, many graduate students that I've interacted with have told me that they don't really follow rigid schedules like that, but they kind of create their own moving parts. Yeah. 
a lot of graduate students have that what I would call kind of artistic tendency whereas like it is about the creativity it's about the intellectual creativity and they don't follow a rigid schedule others do and other disciplines also have norms like for example in the natural sciences often the norm is just to be in the lab basically for you know 10 hours per day so there are more rigid schedules involved that's great. Which universities are included in, or which departments are included in the current study that you're running? So, so far I've done the survey portion and it's an initial survey. It's not a representative sample because as you might guess, it's hard to get a representative sample of research-based graduate students. And let's see, some, uh, I can tell you more easily which departments are not really represented because either they didn't see the, the email or they didn't want to participate. So, you know, some of the departments like physics, some of the fine arts departments, like smaller ones, are not really well represented. Okay. But, you know, I'm not going to be doing with that, with those data, I'm not going to be doing a department level analysis. I don't have enough people to do it. And sure. a department level analysis is really very complex to do because I would need to go into each department and basically get all its paperwork and find out all of its processes. And they, that might be part of a later phase of my study, but it's not where I'm at right now. So you mentioned that, I mean, one main focus of your PhD is instructional design. So right now we're actually talking larger. It, to me, it, it seems like we're talking larger than like instruction that would be implemented at like the course level or in, in a classroom. So right. do you have a, a, a distinct focus on the classroom experience? No, because it's, it's on the design, the educational technology more broadly. So the broader level is the ed tech level, also known as human performance technology. So maybe I should have put that in my, in my intro instead. So it's, it's instructional design and human performance technology, okay. which basically encompasses both levels. At the classroom so level? the classroom and the broader level of the department. Well, it's so, not really two levels, is it? It's like the department and the institution. Right. If, if you're working on the design, then I would assume that you're, with the data that you're gathering, your ultimate goal is to actually create some kind of new, like to produce some new sort yeah. of methodology or some new framework. Yeah, but so the first step in kind of doing this kind of design is to figure out what's going on now. So my PhD is really entirely focused on what's going on now. And based on that, I hope that I'm gonna be able to generate some recommendations in terms of what are the, the kind of areas of greatest leverage of things to change. Because obviously if you're talking about a system and it's a complex system, you know, a small change can have a big effect. And oftentimes making or trying to make big sweeping changes has unpredictable effects and can be counterproductive. So basically in my study, what I want to do is figure out what's going on now. You know, what are the, what are the things that seem to be working well and what are the things that don't seem to be working well? And then where are the areas where we can make kind of judicious incremental change? And this is what you're hoping to learn from these surveys that you're, that you're sending out, which I, I believe have participated in. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, that is, so the survey is one portion and then I'm going to be moving on to uh, an interview portion as well, where I'm going to be getting more information on the structural or the systemic levels that are influencing students and also on students, you know, students actual transformative experience. So when you kind of brought up the point before that, studying certain topics 
can in some ways be, let's say more, I don't think you use this language, but more transformative than others. I think that is the case, you know, so if you're studying bridges that might be, so I, I personally don't study bridges, so I can't really speak to this, but you should try. That might be less, yeah, but it might be less transformative, you know, than studying existentialism. You know, there are definitely like in education, there's a big focus on kind of postmodern critical theory. And that, I mean, that just happens to be challenging to study. Like that's tough. You're going to get deep into the post-structuralist stuff. Like that's tough. So I think that definitely what you study has an effect, but it's not clear how and when and on who. With that specific example, it did sound like we were making a pretty solid distinction between concrete and abstract fields of study, whereas existentialism is considerably more abstract than bridges. Yeah. So maybe there's something to be said there for studying things that you can actually physically interact with. I mean, in an evolutionary perspective, what early humans were most focused on were the physical things that they could see and touch and hear, right? We created music long ago, but we, we, could, we could interact with, with music. But, but just pure thought, studying pure thought to me, seems like it will very likely lead to the most anxiety and depression and stress because there's very little to actually grasp physically. Yeah, and there's no, unfortunately, there's another big problem with it is that there's very little reality check. So that's the nice thing about studying bridges is that it can't be all your opinion. At some point, the bridge either stands up or it doesn't. Right. And when you're really deep into that thought stuff, it's just thought. Mm -hmm. I feel like the intersection of, of, of both of those is mathematics, where math is, can be very abstract, but it's, I guess, in, at least in, in certain senses, there, there is pure mathematics, but when math then gets applied to things like physics, that's when it kind of transforms from abstract to concrete. I, I, I don't know if this is true, but yeah. I feel like I've heard over the years that mathematics is one of those fields that produces a lot of alcoholics. <laughs> so I, I don't know the validity of that statement, yeah, I don't know either. I mean, math is a tough field, though, and it's increasingly difficult to get a PhD in it because basically you have to learn an increasingly complicated body of material and there's right. there are less proofs that are kind of accessible. In any case, that's, you know, the research that I've done on it seems to be pointing in that direction. Yeah. But all of these fields like physics as well, you know, math has a theoretical branch and it has an applied branch and physics as well, chemistry as well. But, you know, a lot of fields have that. And so... It's interesting, right? Because at some point also people gravitate towards what they like the most. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I know, you know, I have a professor who studied theoretical math and he hates applied math. So <laughs> when they asked him to um, teach the stats course, he was like so upset. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> like, exactly what I hate. But yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So we have spent a good amount of time now discussing kind of the, the workings at the graduate level, but you did mention that you've spent time training students at every level. So the, the research that you're doing now, collecting information about the graduate student experience, is there anything to be gained that can be then applied to earlier levels of education? Yes. Yes. I haven't thought about that in a, an enormous amount of depth outside of one particular angle, which is, since I've done a lot of coaching, I have a very, very great interest in what I'll call one-on-one -on -one education. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and if you take a systems perspective on that one-on-one -on -one education is in some ways like the smallest system right because you have the dyad you have like the teacher and you have the student yeah and oftentimes so that's what you're dealing with and you're dealing with a particular kind of relationship there because it can be very in some ways very personal because you're getting at part of a person's hidden world right their intellectual world is part of their hidden world right um 
but it's not it's also it's also a professional relationship so there, there are kind of uh, tricky things that you see in one-on-one -on -one education that you see for example in graduate supervision or in a lot of graduate supervision mm -hmm. um, which also will transfer I think yes. there's more teaching going on at the at, as like a tutor compared to being a supervisor so I guess this is kind of the like tutor coach dichotomy where at least in my experience I never really thought of my supervisor as someone who was teaching me directly whereas right. I, I myself am a tutor I've been tutoring for five years at least at this point and I, I would definitely love to continue this, this conversation about tutoring because I think it's really interesting and the one-on-one -on -one experience is I think a great opportunity for a lot of growth yeah so I love tutoring I feel like tutoring is is like a great uh, it's a great application of a certain kind of education and it's very powerful yeah I but tell yeah. all of my friends who I basically tell everybody that I know if there's something that you like some some teachable subject that you have some skill level in and you enjoy to a certain yeah. degree go and try tutoring it because you will you will by teaching you will learn more you do right and you will kind of yeah. gain an, a, an appreciation for the the discipline maybe I, I don't know this could be more of a personal thing but I've always seen it as a, a really great opportunity to to grow as a listener and also a speaker and a learner and a teacher and everything kind of comes together oh yeah I mean you process you process the material differently when you have to explain it for sure but yeah That's part of what the beauty of this podcast is for me is I love watching and listening to people describe what it is that they do because it's very easy to you know sit in a room quietly reading out an academic article and then write up a part of a paper but when you actually verbalize it things come out a lot differently yeah and it's hard to it's hard to verbalize because oftentimes you know you're you're you develop an understanding of something that's in some ways it's it's you know it's schematic you yeah. might think in images you might think in like in a different way and then you have to put it into the language symbol which can totally just totally come out differently from what you expect sometimes but there's something that I wanted to to follow up on that you mentioned about, for example, supervision compared to tutoring mm -hmm. or to coaching. So there are a couple of differences when you're talking about supervision, one being the general age range that you're looking at. So there's a distinction to be made between pedagogy, teaching of children, and andragogy, teaching of adults. And you certainly don't want to go about it exactly the same way because, you know, adults have slightly different things going on. And let's go ahead and say it a little bit more ego, <laughs> a little bit more ego. <laughs> I've tutored some 16 year olds who think that they're, you know, they're, they're it, you know, <laughs> that they're like, the, this true. is the pinnacle of their life. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. I've had, I've had similar experiences. So the difference but, is, so it is, it is different. However, there's something that I think doesn't change much because you change a lot intellectually, but I don't think you change a lot motivationally. And a lot of times what, what seems to be burnt in by the time a kid is about like six or seven is burnt in until they're like 60 or 70, unless they change it. You're saying motivational levels. Yeah. So when I, when I say motivational levels, what I mean is does the student have a pattern of kind of insecurity when faced with a certain stage of completion of their work, right? If they have that when they're six, they, you know, they very well might have it when they're 25 writing a thesis. And That's so, totally different than what I was imagining when you said motivation, because I initially disagreed with you, but then when you explained it this way, it, it makes more sense. So continue. Yeah, I, use, I use motivation in that, in that 
stress psychologist sense, which gets me in trouble often. But yeah. You're so, talking more about like an insecurity. So yeah, motivate. So I'll explain what I mean by motivation. I basically mean the, the drive level of action. <laughs> so what, you know, what makes you move forward and what blocks you. And so often that will man manifest as something like insecurity, right? But it doesn't have to. Sure. It manifest as a whole bunch of different things. Basically that, that visceral, almost like emotional level of learning, which is something that you really come face to face with a lot when you're tutoring. Because I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of the kids that I worked with, the, the problem is certainly not intellectual. The problem is something else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe sure they need to have the concept explained a little bit differently or this or that. But oftentimes there's, some, uh, there's something else going on that's kind of on the emotional level. And that's the challenge. And, you know, if you look at what happens with a lot of grad students when they're writing theses, you know, it's not intellectual in the sense that like they've done the work, they're able to do it, but there's something else going on. And that component of one-on-one -on -one education, I think, remains. So first of all, I'm glad that you define motivation in that way, because I definitely had a different kind of idea of motivation. And for me, my motivations have changed the levels so to which you, I'm motivated. How, you, how are you defining or how did you initially understand motivation? For me, motivation is a lot about like forward looking. So how motivated am I to actually get to a specific to achieve a specific end? Okay, right. So I is incentivized another word for that? I guess that's what it is. Because when I was six or seven years old, everything, like I would go to school yeah. and I had no choice in the teachers I was going to have, the courses I was going to take, the homework I was, it's just, everything was just prescribed. Right. And so as I gained more freedom throughout my academic career, that's when I felt often to be more motivated. And of course that, that ebbs and flows. When I started my undergraduate degree, I was in physics and I became very unmotivated and I switched programs into the cognitive sciences because of that. So it isn't just kind of a linear uh, path. You're one of the physics psychology crossovers. <laughs> yeah. Two episodes ago, the listeners at this point will hopefully have heard episode with William Scott Thompson, who was in physics with me at McGill, and we both moved into the cognitive sciences. He took the neuroscience really? route. Yeah. So I, I think it's a thing that happens. There are overlaps yeah. between the two, but it's just a hunger for the more abstract, I guess, maybe. I don't know. Physics is pretty abstract. That's, that's another story for a different it's time. Another, it's another story, but you're yeah. a good company. But, good but company. yeah, so, so I like the way you, you defined motivation. And I do agree that definitely in terms of insecurities and the way people perceive that motivation, or at least the way it's instantiated in one's life will be more stable yeah. when you're describing it. The kind of internal, if you prefer, internal emotional patterns are, are there. And I do consider them motivational in the sense that they do depend on incentive. They depend on what you're doing to the person in terms of incentive, reward, punishment, all that business. Punishment, eh? How do you punish your students? You can punish them. Well, depends, right? I'm not, right now, I'm not going into the classical conditioning type positive, negative punishment stuff, okay? Right. Add to side because that's for, for, you know, technical psych people. You can punish them through neglect. What do you mean by that? Okay, so you put in a lot of work, you write, you know, let's say, I don't know, a chapter of your thesis, you like blood, sweat, and tears, it's all there, nobody reads it. Your supervisor doesn't read it, or takes like three months to read it. Mm -hmm. That's neglect, and it's punishment. Yeah, okay. 
It feels very mean. Of you can also just like, you know, you can have somebody who writes something that's really good and then you can totally tear it apart. That happens too. Luckily, it doesn't happen very often, but that would also be a punishment. Interesting. Okay. I see that. We'll definitely not go down the behavioral route here. No need to dive into that. I like that despite uh, your focus being on education, the more recent discussion has, has landed on education specifically, but we've kind of discussed a lot of the surrounding operations, so, yeah. so, right? Because education isn't just what I was kind of curious to learn more about in this talk, which I guess hasn't really happened because it's not your focus, but the classroom setting. I'm so infatuated by the classroom setting because it's, it's, it's where I'd like to end up. I'm, I'm currently, actually, you should know this just so that you're not misled in who you're speaking to right now. I actually withdrew from my master's degree. Really? Yeah, and I am applying to a master's in teaching and learning at McGill. I don't know if you know the program. Really? No, I don't. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a relatively new program. It's called the MATL, and they have different different uh, kind of topics that you can you can do it in. So I'm doing the mathematics stream, masters in teaching and learning, and so I, I will be getting my permit to teach in a high school setting where I'd like to teach mathematics. That's kind of the goal at this point. That is a very very good move. <laughs> <laughs> So this is this this podcast is just one way that I kind of keep myself in the in the higher education like the the graduate school environment because I did enjoy many aspects of it, including three minute thesis. Mm -hmm. So by talking to other graduate students, I feel like I'm still part of it. <laughs> Listen, there are a lot of people who are not particularly positive about the the future of graduate education in general, and I think that podcasting is is you know, it's, it's going to be an important part of how these kind of conversations are. Well, it already is an important part of how these conversations are had now. And I think it's going to be increasingly so. I hope so. I'm, I'm a fan of the, of the format, the fact that it's, that it's in for, that it can be as informal as you want. And I, I think that's kind of the, the approach that we're taking here on abstract. We just want it. I, I just want to pull the information out of people and give people an opportunity to speak on topics that don't get to uh, be discussed at this level of informality. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's I feel really like one of the you know one of the things that that is kind of such a shame about graduate education. Although there are lots of nice things about it, one of the things that's a shame is that if you actually talk to people, oftentimes they're like what they have to say about their subject is so much more interesting than what they actually get to put in a paper, because the paper has yep. to go through this kind of brutal peer review. And, you know, it keeps people quite conservative in terms of what they're able to say. And there are really good reasons for that. But, you know, the negative side is that, you know, you don't kind of get to spitball and just like hear what people really think. Yeah. Once again, that's, that's really another benefit, I think, of at least for me having this podcast is I'm still learning about things at a graduate level. But there isn't that bureaucratic top-down control of what is being said and you know, kind of formatting everything. It's a lot more free flowing and organic, which I love. So oh, nice. we're heading to the, to the end stage. The of final this, stretch. The final stretch of today's episode. So far, so great. Couple questions. These are the questions that are pre-planned. Other than this, it's just been whatever goes, goes. All right. So this, this second to last question is about work-life balance. So given that you are studying the, the environment that provides, I guess maybe kind of provides the framework for how people engage with their own balance, 
I'm curious to know what you actually do personally to strike that balance. And maybe if you have advice for people in how to optimize this balance. Hmm. Big question. Big question. I would say I probably learned the hard way that you need to strive to do two things. And one is, well, it's actually the same thing, but one is put yourself first and the other is put your authentic self first. You're going to need to break that down for us. <laughs> yeah. So basically people say work-life balance, right? Work-life balance isn't going to help you if it's always a struggle to either work or live. <laughs> you have to, you know, tune in with yourself regularly and figure out what you need and what you want and do that. And that's where the authentic piece comes in. If you're, you know, if you're not tuning into yourself, but you're just sitting down and saying, what do I need and what do I want? You may well answer that with what other people want for you. So if you tune in, you figure out what you need, you figure out what you want. And oftentimes you're gonna tune in and what you need and what you want is a break. And you do that, you're gonna be okay. <laughs> if you don't do that, you're not gonna be okay. How can I or anybody listening right now identify whether they are being, whether they are, they are talking about or interacting with their authentic self or with the self that they think others want them to be? Ooh, another big question. I will, right I will give you my, my best answer, which is that you have to kind of cultivate the ability to discern that. Because I could say, well, being your authentic self makes you, let's say, quote unquote, happy, right? Well, say, well, actually, oftentimes what's going to make you the quote unquote happiest is doing what you think other people want you to do. But what is going to give you the most satisfaction and kind of peace is going to be being authentic. So you, you have to learn to distinguish between, you know, a kind of an elation maybe that comes from thinking that you're doing the quote unquote right thing versus a kind of a solidity that comes from doing the authentic thing. So it's, so you almost have to kind of run your own personal experiment, try Absolutely. doing different things and see Absolutely. how it makes you feel. Exactly. And then identify what, okay. See, I, I think that's a great idea, a great plan. Sometimes though, with big decisions, like withdrawing from a master's degree, it's not the kind of thing that you can test out for a week, right? Well, you can though, in the sense that you can say, okay, I make this decision, give yourself a couple of days, see how you feel about it. Right. Then you say, okay, I make the other decision. Now, how do you feel about it? And like, the thing is that like that, that, I mean, I understand what you're saying in the sense that big decisions, one of the problems is you're going to get in your head a lot faster when it comes to a big decision. Cause you go, Oh, what about, what about this? But what about that? But what yeah. about this? But what about that? But if you're able to pause that, you know, you can see it because I mean, you know, I've talked to people and I, you know, I can see it in their body. Cause they're like, I'm thinking that, you know, let's say, um, you know, I'm going to pursue the PhD. And they kind of look like this. You can't, no, this is a podcast, so you can't see me, but they, you know, their body language kind of goes into like, slump. they look tired, mm -hmm. slump. Ugh. They go, oh, I'm going to look for a job. And suddenly it's like the person is like, okay, you know, you see the energy come back into their eyes. Yeah. Well, which one do you think they should be doing? Like that, that person wants to go look for a job. Right. And, you know, okay. absolutely like it. some practice to like get to know yourself on that level. You know, especially if you are kind of a grad student and you have been tracked all your life and you are used to performing and, you know, measuring yourself to external standards, then sure, see it, get to know yourself. Okay. I like that. And I guess there, there was one thing that you said there, which is um, 
being able to kind of monitor and, and keep the, that kind of internal dialogue in check when you're making big decisions. I think not to get into this whole thing, but I, I, I would personally recommend meditation as a way to get in touch with your kind of inner, inner monologue. Maybe we'll talk about meditation on a later episode with somebody who knows more about it. I'm no expert, Nadine. I don't know if you're an expert, but we're gonna. My sister's an expert. My sister oh. teaches it. Oh wow. Okay. Well. Anyway. Anyways, we'll, we'll we'll figure that out at some point. Maybe we'll have her on for a quick little meditation session at some point. And so let's uh, let's slide into the last question here. Ding 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 ding. Final question. No right or wrong answer. This, was, this is purely subjective. So we're gonna end on an easy note. There's no, this is all you. So the question is, how would you describe yourself as a person outside of academia and as an academic separately? One to three words each. Are they the same or are they different? Ooh, interesting. Oh, okay, one to three words. Describe myself as a person. Could be like individual words or could be a phrase. Hmm. I mean, as a person, nice, hardworking, dedicated. As an academic, rogue, smart, cooperative. I'm, I'm impressed at how quickly you came up with six distinct words. <laughs> in that Have you thought about this before? No. <laughs> not, in, not in, you know, so not in these terms, but... Okay, so those were, those were definitely three distinct terms for each. Yeah. How did, you, how did you come to choose these words? Let's just maybe get like a quick little note on each of those, if we can. On each of them? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, nice. I mean, okay, yeah, so like you're nice. But nice, I, I feel like nice is a cop-out unless you tell me more. How's, how was nice, how did nice make it into the top three? Well. You seem nice. Thanks. Um, no, it's, I have a, you know, I, cause the thing is this, so I, I have done a lot of kind of, you know, personal development and thinking about different kinds of questions. And I know that as a personality, you know, my, my kind of initial approach tends to be pretty gentle and that, you know, that is kind of part of, you know, my makeup as a person. Okay. So nice. Uh, the other one that I put was hardworking. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I work yeah. hard. <laughs> I know sure. that I work hard. Okay, fair enough, so, fair enough. You know, and I work hard on it, like kind of at a lot of different levels, so. This was for personal though, that's what we're still working on. So this is, you're, you're yeah, working hard I at your like personal as a person, as a person, like I work hard, that's why I'm like, it's not, it's not just that like, I feel like I work hard, like on my academic stuff. I kind of work hard in general, like on myself as a person and in okay. general. Yeah. I feel like I get to, I get to say that about myself. Uh, my last one was dedicated. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I, I, it's hard for me to explain that. Cause I'm like, yeah, I feel like when I, you know, when I take something on or when I kind of commit to something, I, I try to serve it as best I can. And if I can't, I let it go. But you know, that is the, the way that I try to approach the things in my life. Right. Okay. And okay. academic, we got rogue. Rogue. Oh yeah. Cause I'll go left. I'm like, I'll go left. I'll quit a PhD. I'll like, you know, I'm like, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll do what I think I got to do smart. There tend to be reasons for it. You know, I will do my research. Yeah. I kind of, I'm kind of uh, what I, what I like about, so I'm like, this is, you know, I run in danger of sounding like I'm tooting my own horn too much here, but what I, like, what I like about my approach as an intellectual and as an academic is that I like that I kind of will connect the dots across disparate fields of knowledge. Mm -hmm. 
So, and I feel like that's something that I appreciate appreciate about my intellectual makeup. So, I get to call myself smart. <laughs> sure, that could be also that could also manifest in like creative, right? Yeah, yeah. No, there's definitely a, like a creative element to it. It's all kind of a, words are approximations for what's really going on. Yeah, that's probably why this is a difficult task is because you can feel a certain way about yourself and then vocalizing it. We, we already spoke about this earlier. You're exactly. putting things into words, change. Like, how do you describe that? Hmm. Yeah. So you do your best. Okay, so smart. And then my last one was cooperative. Ah, uh, yes. Because the thing is this, even though, you know, I will go left, if I connect the dots a certain way, if I do my research a certain way, I'll be, I'll be kind of committed to a certain position. You know, I'm, I'm willing to work with people. I don't need everybody to agree with me. I don't need everybody to have the same ideology work within the same paradigms. I will, I will work with people. I'll work within the system as far as I can do so authentically. But, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of think that it's really important to collaborate in the sense of understanding that we have to share ideas. We're not always going to agree. And that's kind of part of the fun. Perfect. Well, I'm glad that you decided to share your ideas today. Many ideas were shared. Uh, so if you're listening right now, hope that you enjoyed the sharing of ideas once again on another episode of Abstract. So I just want to thank you, Nadine, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for replying to my email, or I guess sending me an email because I put it into the survey that I signed up. Uh, so it's funny how these things come together. Thanks yeah. again. It was great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Really nice to have you. So that, that ends it for today, episode 15 of Abstract, the podcast. I will catch you all around. Take it easy. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.